there's a chill in the air and midnight is almost upon us. Gather once more around the fire and listen closely. Can you hear them? Can you feel their cold breath? A tingle runs down your spine and you have goosebumps. They are the ghosts of Christmas. Memory is a fickle thing. Keeping certain events as fresh and vivid as the day they had occurred, shrouding others under its veil of sweet oblivion. Walking the narrow streets of Oxford after all these years, I came close to understanding the beautiful paradox this city was built upon. Ever-changing, it always stayed the same. Immortal, it died and was reborn each year as new generations came and went. Even though I had been afraid to come back, I knew that one way or another my return was inevitable. By a peculiar twist of fate, which I was always told never plays with dice, I found myself back in Oxford in a bleak midwinter day, almost twenty years after the fire. I was told that a new science building was built over the charred ruins of the Hawksmoor building, relegating the fire to little more than a footnote in Oxford's lengthy and eventful history. Most people, I assume, had forgotten all about that night, but I still wore a reminder of the flames on the side of my face. I never tried hiding my scars. I suppose everyone must endure the haunting of their personal ghosts. I found that wearing them on my face made the whole process less cumbersome. Perhaps it was also a visible reminder of the price my friends had to pay for my arrogance. None of them survived the fire. The sensitive Algernon, Robert, practical and blasé, Edith, always looking for somewhere to belong, all burned beyond recognition. My scars also reminded me of the extent of my ignorance. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Such was the warning seared in my flesh. Unlike most people, I didn't deny the ghosts that were haunting me. Not anymore. The terror of that fateful night still lived in my dreams, always renewed and vibrant. Some fires burned through mind and body, and the scars they leave mark both flesh and soul. I went through the events which led to the fire again and again ad nauseam. No police officer probed further and pressed me harder than myself. No matter how much I had tried, I could never forget that night, nor the blazing flames. But even worse are my memories of the dreadful shadows. I tried convincing myself that they were nothing more than a fever dream, hallucinations caused by the shock of burning alive. Despite my absolute belief in a rational explanation, the stories I had heard that night kept coming back to me like a dream seeping into reality. I studied each fragment of the tales I could remember, hoping they would contain some nugget of truth, some occult clues as to what transpired that night, in vain. I had them analyzed by psychologists, interpreted by mystics and clairvoyant, dissected by critics, and none of the answers offered anything but more questions. I had all but abandoned all hopes of making sense of this series of events when I ended up in my old stomping grounds. 
I doubted that simply walking the streets of Oxford could provide some closure, but so far it had offered an opportunity for introspection. And so it was that, trying to avoid the ebb and flow of tourists and students, I found myself in an unfamiliar lane. It was by all accounts a typical example of Oxford's archaic beauty, with its narrow, winding, cobbled pathway flanked by high, neo-Gothic buildings on both sides. A covered bridge crossed the lane further ahead. The promise of a respite from the cold, drizzling rain enticed me to walk on. There was an air of mystery and adventure about this place. In other days, someone might have arranged a secret rendezvous here, or dueled to the death in the swirling mist. Blood and tears might have anointed the wet cobblestone. The noises of the main road seemed to recede, and the grey light of the afternoon grew dimmer. I neared the end of the lane. I began hearing a peculiar sound, like a once familiar melody lingering on the edge of memory. I found the source of the music under the covered bridge. It was coming from a dingy shop tucked beneath the archway. The rusty sign dangling above the window was unreadable. Curiosity compelled me to press my face against the grimy window. I expected a derelict charity shop or a seller of overpriced antiques, not a toy shop. The display was a clutter of china dolls, various-sized pinwheels, stuffed animals, model railways and trains, miniature knights, building blocks, spinning tops and wooden puzzles. Most of these toys were old-fashioned, and would have been so even during my childhood. I wondered how such a shop could survive hidden away from the main street. How long I stood there, staring into the haphazard display of old toys, I couldn't say. Everyone, I assume, has experienced moments of absent-mindedness like this, vacantly looking at the shape of someone's face or at some abstract landscape through a window, watching without seeing, lost to the world, hypnotized by a sound or a pattern. I cupped my hands against the glass to see more clearly. I noticed slight anomalies within the window display, a glint of consciousness in the glassy eyes of a china doll, visible breath coming out of a teddy bear's mouth, only to evaporate into nothingness almost immediately, strange lights flickering inside the model church near the miniature train station, little puffs of white smoke as the small toy locomotive started running on its own, a wooden Pinocchio twitching and jerking at the end of its strings. Almost imperceptibly, the grubby display was waking up, and soon, for some mysterious reason this thought alarmed me most of all, it would be fully awake. I could almost hear the pitter-patter of thousands of tiny feet and the clinks of innumerable cogs as I watched the toys coming to life. I couldn't shake off the uneasy feeling that I was witnessing something that wasn't meant for ordinary eyes, and in doing so was trespassing against some unspoken rule. came back to the world. The shop was as dead as ever, and the toys lay motionless under the dull light of the street lamp. To convince myself that it was nothing more than a symptom of my imagination, or the result of stirring up unpleasant memories, I decided to step into the shop. The shop was even dingier on the inside, 
As far as I could make out, it was divided into three narrow aisles with a spiral staircase in the back. Shelves seemed to be on the verge of collapsing under the weight of various knick-knacks and mismatched curiosities. Dusty leather-bound tomes piled up next to forgotten board games. There were model racing cars on the floor, and a hot air balloon's mobile was hanging in the middle of the aisle. I passed an assortment of old globes. It was odd, I thought, that there was nobody to tend the shop, no checkout. In fact, it was closer to a derelict museum than a shop. All the items I had looked over were missing a price tag. I was about to leave when a shelf on the far corner attracted my attention. It was a vast array of vintage sporting goods. There were ornate croquet mallets, leather rugby balls, boxing gloves and an old leather punching bag, square tennis racket. Various flags hung against the walls above rowing oars. I even found intricately woven antique snowshoes. Nearly all of these objects were in mint condition, brand new in fact, with the notable exception of a pair of wooden skis. Despite marks of use, it was a beautiful piece. Hanging next to the skis were old-fashioned snow goggles and a tweed costume. I had half a mind to try it on, but the unpleasant sensation of being watched prevented me from touching anything. I thought I heard a faint rustle next to me, like a whisper. Nothing. The patter of rain against the roof, probably. I went upstairs in the hopes of unearthing more treasures from the heaps of trinkets and curios. Half the room was filled with articles of clothing, from lush fur coats to dinner jacket and sparkling evening dresses. Not being one to wear used clothes, I proceeded to the fancy dress section. Masks upon masks scattered on the walls, collecting dust. Venetian masks covered with gold were gazing at me with their inscrutable expression. They were surrounded by other, more sinister faces. White paper clay Japanese masks. Balinese demons with real hair and teeth. There were also costumes and disguises from every continent and every period in history. Seeing a silhouette in the corner, I nearly jumped out of my skin. It was only a mannequin, dressed in Roman fashion. Something cold brushed against my back, and my skin prickled. I resisted the urge to turn around quickly and try to laugh at my silliness. All the same, I had grown tired of the silence and stuffy atmosphere of this place. I began to make my way back through the clutter. I was almost at the door when I found a large open-top cylindrical box resting on a lamp base near the exit. Upon closer examination, I realized that it wasn't a music box after all. The device consisted in a strip of pictures placed around an inner circle of mirrors. A small hand crank could be used to make the outer circle spin, which I assumed would create the illusion of movement. I couldn't resist. The device started spinning, and as it spun faster and faster, tiny characters and landscapes appeared on the mirrors and began moving. Although I understood the basic mechanism, there was magic in seeing pictures animate to tell a story. The scene that unraveled was surprisingly dark and moody for a children's toy. A steam train rushing through the wintry countryside, a woman and a child waiting on a platform. 
Behind them, a dark, crooked shape getting bigger, stalking them like prey, holding a suitcase. I turned away in shock and staggered in the aisle. Fighting the urge to run, I cast a last glance to the device. Nice machine, isn't it? You don't see praxinoscopes very often these days. They've become somewhat of a rarity. I guess so. Are you the owner of this establishment? I take care of the toys until they find a proper home. Does that answer your question? Because of the feeble voice, I expected to see a doddering old man, barely able to stand up. Yet he loomed large, in height as much as girth. Confused eyebrows and shaggy white hair gave him an air of senility and innocence, but there was clarity in his eyes. Hmm, indeed. Sorry to have troubled you. I'll be on my way. Is there a problem, my good sir? I... I know it sounds silly, but there's something odd about this place. I can't quite put my finger on it. I think... I believe it might be haunted. Yes, indeed it is. Places such as these are forever haunted by the hopes and dreams of children. I'd wager even you could find some ghosts of your childhood lingering within these walls. Mind you, they need not be spooky nor frightful. Some ghosts are full of light and colors. A young boy once said to me that through the windows of my small shop he could see all the colors God ever created. He hobbled to the next row of shelves and grabbed a rectangular tin box. I dare say these don't hold any terror to you. What is this? Oh, I remember. It was my favorite toy. I must have played with these little soldiers for hours. I assumed it was a lucky guess on the old man's part. Every boy from my generation loved these little soldiers. Still, holding them again caused a rush of nostalgia and cheered my heart. How much are they? May what? The lead toy soldiers you just handed to me. I, I can't see any price tag. Good heavens, no money, of course. Why would I ask for anything of the sort? Well, that's very kind of you and unexpected. Unexpected? What do you mean? We're not in the business of taking money here. Never have been, never will be. I'm sorry, no offense, but as far as business practices go, not taking any money is rather unusual. You could be Father Christmas himself for all I know. <laughs> do you mean that... I... I am. A deep silence surrounded us. Even the air seemed to stand still. The day had grown dimmer outside, and I couldn't see anything through the windows. We were cut off from the rest of the world. I looked around, trying to see beyond the chaos, paying attention to what was actually there instead of what I expected to see. It wasn't as dark as I thought throughout my visit. Candles were flickering all around us, a few lights were twinkling in the model train station as well. In fact, the whole place was shimmering and shining. All the colors seemed brighter, more real. A pinwheel began whirling. I was beginning to discern a pattern beyond the apparent chaos. Light flooded the shop, 
and for a short, blinding moment, I saw the toys move. Not in the mechanical, unnerving way of the automata, but really move. Dolls laughed, cried and fussed. Soldiers and knights fought each other. Model planes were no longer held by strings and executed feats of daring. The moment passed, and although I was back in the grimy, dusty toy shop, I couldn't quite forget what I had seen. So few people come by the shop these days. I don't understand what they hold against me. The philosophers object to me on strange moral grounds. They call me an old-fashioned myth, a lie, a deception. They say I am not real, and yet they claim that there are no such things as reality and truth. The Puritans think I'm too fat, too jolly, too coarse. They profess love and charity, but would like me to be haughty and stern. Why would you embrace your children without warmth? How can joy itself be too jolly? Some blame me for being too heavenly, and others reject me as a secular diversion. But how could you love someone if you had no heart, no soul? Father Christmas's head hung low. Despite his formidable size, he looked feeble, almost sickly. Part of me couldn't believe what was happening. How odd that, even in the face of clear evidence, the rational faculties object to what is on the grounds of what should be. I understand what you mean. I've struggled with skepticism myself. I know that symbols and rituals have a kernel of truth hidden within them. For generosity and joy to live on, each of us must try to embody the spirit of Christmas. I don't doubt that you are doing your part better than most, but surely you cannot be the Father Christmas. It's an idea, something to strive for. It would be too great a burden for anyone to call his own. I know your types. The others think the Bethlehem story is dull and straightforward. Anything trivial enough to be understood by shepherds, and some would say even by sheep, doesn't deserve any consideration. But tell me, when was a child ever just a child? You lot are on the side of the Magi, always scrutinizing the stars in search of inscrutable mysteries. As the universe unfolds before you in all its majesty, you can't help but dig deeper, think further. To you, I will say this. Is there any greater mystery than life itself? And greater comfort than light in the darkness? As he spoke, the lights had grown dimmer and dimmer until I could hardly distinguish anything, save for his massive outline and the gleam in his eyes. I was grateful for the darkness as it concealed the tears that were rolling down my cheeks. As heavy as my burden had seemed throughout the years, I had just realized that his own would always be heavier. Take the box of soldiers back, please. I don't deserve any Christmas present. I don't know that I even deserve to live. I've done terrible things. 
Something colossal shifted in the dark, and for a while I wondered whether the shadows of my past had finally caught up with me. There was once a run-down shed for the livestock, around which revolved the whole universe. Kingdoms trembled, hope flourished, the stars themselves changed their course, all because of something as small and inconsequential as a newborn sleeping in a derelict cattle stall. Consider this. Your friends already knew that everything is a miracle. Only you needed to be taught how to see what matters. You need not torment yourself for their death. Even he who was crowned as a king and worshipped as a god had to die like a man. Your friends live on and so should you. For even though your cohorts of modern thinkers are not dead, I wouldn't count them as truly alive. I came back to my senses later that night, in the narrow, twisting lane. Snow had begun to fall some time ago, covering the cobblestones with a thin layer of white. I ran to the covered bridge, but found no trace of the toy shop. Another Christmas, another dream. As I was walking back toward the main street, I put my hand in my pocket. There was something cold and pointy in there, a little toy soldier. I looked back and, through the hail of snow, I saw three silhouettes waving at me. One was tall and gaunt. The shadow next to it was shorter, fatter, and carried what seemed to be a suitcase. The last one had long hair flowing in the wind. I offered my friends a last greeting and left. I never found this place again. When I think about it, I remember that unease and trepidation can turn into wonder just as easily as they can lead to fear, and I know that when death comes knocking, I'll have a proper story to tell, one that might even grant me a place in that most ancient and honourable of orders, under the patronage of Saint Nicholas of Myra. This brings us to the end of the Midnight Carols. Time for me to spring to my sleigh and to my team give a whistle. And then away we fly like the down of a thistle. But you can hear us exclaim ere we drive out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Chapter 5 featured Michael Garamoni as Montague and Peter Coates as Father Christmas and the announcer. Sound design by Jamie Stoffer from JLS Audio. The Midnight Carols was created by Vincent Robert Nicou. Special thanks to Natalie, his wife, who was there every step of the way. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this story, don't forget to share it with your friends and family.